Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is uh, November the 23rd, and this election fast continues to go on uh, as I speak. Uh, the Trump people over the weekend disavowed one of their crazier lawyers, but if you check on uh, the current president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, on his Twitter account, which is followed by almost 90 million followers. He's still claiming that he won the election. Meanwhile, business leaders are getting more and more impatient, claiming that he's doing damage to the country. So the real question is, what is in it for Trump? Why is he doing this when it's clear that he's lost the election? One person who has been doing a lot of thinking about this is Steve Cole. He's a staff writer on the New Yorker, amongst many other things. And he just wrote a wonderful piece in the New Yorker called What Does Trump Get Out of Contesting Biden's Win? Steve, what is in it for Trump, this crazy behavior, this particularly crazy behavior? Well, what's in it as ever is his self-interest. And then the question is exactly what is he thinking about? I think uh, initially, uh, Evidently, that's hard to get inside his head. It bounces around quite a lot, his thinking. But initially, I think he genuinely had in mind a kind of uh, coup d'etat that would be delivered to him. Initially, he was hoping by the courts, uh, and then gradually that became less and less plausible. And so he turned his attention to the possibility of hijacking the Electoral College through state legislatures in battleground states. He still seems to be playing out um, uh, versions of that by pressuring um, election authorities in Georgia and Michigan, trying to get them to delay certification of the vote, and by contacting state legislatures uh, in a sort of fanciful theory that somehow uh, they can bypass um, the laws uh, that require states to appoint electors uh, on the basis of who won the popular vote in that state. Um, now that uh, his hopes of actually remaining in office seem to be fading, I think he's increasingly developing what you might think of as a, a parallel track, which is to strengthen his grip on the Republican Party to mobilize his base of supporters and funders for a life after the presidency. And if uh, the reporting that we're seeing in places like the New York Times and the Washington Post is accurate, he's telling his uh, aides that he intends to run again in 2024. Um, and whether that is a, um, a deeply held conviction or one that will uh, be borne out by events, uh, he certainly is thinking about how to um, make money and to position himself as a kingmaker, as a um, media personality, as someone who uh, continues to have influence and opportunity based on, uh, you know, the grip that he has on his followers. So he seems to be setting up, you can sort of imagine him down in Florida uh, with his Twitter feed, 
um, after he leaves office, um, plotting um, a return to power. And I don't uh, rule out at all uh, that he will seek to even announce early on an intention to run in 2024 for, for president again. Uh, Steve, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, the brilliant Carlos Lozada on the, on, on the show. He wrote a, a wonderful book. I'm sure you know it called What We Were Thinking, a, a kind of a brief overall intellectual history of the Trump age. What camp do you fall in in terms of interpreting Trump? Do you see him as a, a reality television star who somehow stumbled into politics? Or does he reflect or represent uh, some sort of structural existential shift in American polit political and cultural life? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's, um, it's a combination of uh, the reality star entering politics. I think you know, he's not, as we understand, a deep reader of American political or intellectual or cultural history, but he lived through an era in which other reality stars uh, took office before him, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in California, and then uh, the professional wrestler uh, Jesse Ventura, who was governor of Minnesota, um, at least for one term. Uh, and so I think that is part of uh, his inspiration, but then, um, perhaps more deeply and, and more importantly, he has drawn uh, on a deep vein of um, populism and racism in American politics that I think you would trace back through George Wallace as a very important uh, influence and model for his campaign. Wallace was the segregationist governor of uh, Alabama during the 1960s. He ran for president as an independent in 1968 on a platform that combined race baiting and promotion of segregation with a populist appeal to the forgotten man uh, and, and kind of drew on Southern populist traditions uh, such as that exemplified by Louis Long, uh, Huey Long in Louisiana. And, uh, you know, yes, there are other models like Joe McCarthy, who he's connected to through uh, his longtime relationship with Roy Cohn, who was Joe McCarthy's uh, chief of staff during the um, McCarthy era in the 50s, anti-communist race uh, red baiting era. So um, his political success is, I think, derived from these antecedents of the Southern strategy uh, that began with Wallace and then became a, main, a mainstay of Republican electoral strategies. And then this more recent kind of reality TV, Hollywood celebrity inspired model of the outsider crashing into establishment politics. Uh, Steve, a couple of uh, weeks ago, we had the constitutional scholar Alan Hirsch on the show talking about a, a short history of his latest book, A Short History of Presidential Election Crisis. He argues that we need to profoundly structurally reform the electoral, uh, the electoral college. He's not alone. Many people have argued it, including yourself in a very interesting uh, New Yorker piece a couple of months ago, the case for dumping the electoral college. But didn't it work this time around? I mean, we all, or at least speaking on behalf of you and I, and I think most of our audience, we all got the outcome we wanted. Well, but it was a close run thing. And I, I've been doing a lot of uh, thinking. I haven't quite... Uh, finished deciding what uh, to write about, about what this outcome actually tells us about how dangerous the Electoral College is. Uh, there's some things we can say 
easily. First of all, this looks to be the largest gap uh, in modern times between the outcome of the popular vote, which Joe Biden has won by nearly 6 million votes and counting, and the margin that basically decided the Electoral College and the tipping point states, which was, you know, so uh, 6 million votes versus margins in the tens of thousands in the tipping point states. So that just shows you that the gap between uh, the national vote and the battleground state vote, so-called, is widening. And that, I think, is dangerous. Then there is this, um, this kind of mechanical attempt to manipulate or seize control of the Electoral College, which the president has attempted and seems destined to fail. But, I, but what I find myself thinking about and wanting to do some more work on is how those state-by-state uh, -state mechanisms that uh, select electors and that um, essentially establish the legitimacy of the Electoral College um, are vulnerable, that he's shown them to be vulnerable, even in his attempt. And this is the thing about Trump. Uh, he, he's incompetent at his own conspiracies, but we should be worried that he has even been able to outline a plausible path that a more capable uh, anti-democratic president might follow in the future. And I think the Electoral College is part of that vulnerability. I mean, just look at what's been happening in this week where the president has been calling uh, state legislators in, in places like Michigan and apparently has been in contact in places like Pennsylvania as well, trying to get them to essentially bypass uh, the procedures for uh, selecting electors. Now, you know, he's, he's not likely to succeed, but he's exploiting ambiguity in constitutional law about what powers are uh, available outside of the traditional process uh, in a crisis. He's tried to manufacture a crisis. He doesn't have anything to work with because the vote gaps have been so large and because there hasn't been the fraud that he previewed. But that doesn't mean that in a future crisis, another president with a different set of facts and, and, a, and a more capable strategy uh, couldn't follow that same path and, and, it, and show once and for all that the Electoral College is, uh, does have within it uh, the potential for, for anti-democratic um, exploitation. Steve, in addition to your role at The New Yorker, you also run the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. And last but certainly not least, you're the author of, of many books about the world. Your, your former life was as a foreign correspondent. As we speak, Biden is announcing his foreign policy team, uh, Tony Blinken, um, Avril Haines, and a number of other people. What damage in your mind, and as an observer of America in the world, longtime observer, what damage has Trump done? Can can we go back to normal? Do we indeed want to go back to normal in, in terms of America's role in the world? And I don't even know what normal really means. Maybe you can <laughs> yeah, well, it is, it is a different world um, four years later, and Trump is responsible for a good part of that difference from the perspective of American interests and American foreign policy. I think the area where it will be possible to make the most progress in foreign policy, um, the swiftest is in the reaffirmation um, of American alliances in the world. This has been a bipartisan um, 
pillar of America's approach uh, to the post-Second World War world. Uh, and Trump's shattering his disdain for NATO, for, for alliances with uh, the European Union and its principal uh, national powers, his disdain for um, alliances in Asia with partners such as South Korea and um, Japan, and and his bullying about, you know, you have to pay more, uh, that essentially the American diplomatic, military, and economic uh, contributions to these alliances are, um, you know, are something that need to be revisited. All of that Biden will uh, reverse quickly. And I imagine that in many capitals, there, there will be a welcome return to um, normal engagement around shared challenges uh, globally, uh, whether that is economic recovery from the coronavirus pandemic, which is probably the most urgent matter, um, or longer term uh, security uh, challenges such as the Iranian nuclear program or the Islamic State or others that we could list. Um, but, you know, beyond that, the question is, once uh, the Biden administration gets into those um, reaffirmed and revived alliance negotiations, how do America's um, allies see the stability of the United States, the reliability of American politics, um, not just over the next few years, but over the next decade or two. Um, clearly, the country is polarized, and the margin in this election uh, was not a massive repudiation of Trumpism. Uh, clearly, um, smart American desks, America desks in Europe and Asia are going to understand that there's every chance that the Republican Party will be gripped by some form of Trumpist populism over the next four to eight years, and that the Republican Party is viable politically and could easily uh, come back to power, uh, whether Trump is reelected or not, with an agenda that uh, emphasizes American nationalism and downgrades traditional alliances. So, so if you're in, um, in Berlin or Paris or London or Tokyo or Seoul, and you're thinking about your own national interests, how do you calculate the reliability of an American partnership when you've got uh, to balance uh, your, your relations with Washington with the rising power of China, uh, the bullying pressure that you may face from, from Russia, um, and so on? And I think that there is a great deal of enduring uncertainty that the Biden administration and any administration that follows is going to have to manage in in these alliances. Steve, you, uh, many of our, our viewers will be familiar with some of your wonderful books about the Middle East and Central Asia, Ghost Wars about the American war in Afghanistan, book about the Bin Ladens, books about American oil interests in the Middle East. A, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Frank Gus uh, Biggio, typical foot, I wouldn't call him a foot soldier, but say not a senior soldier on the show, talking about his new book, The Walls of Helmand, his experience in Afghanistan. Lots of photos of somewhat confused American soldiers with locals there. How do you think uh, this Afghan war will be remembered? You're, you're, one of, uh, you're one of the people with a memory of this war. Um, how are we going to remember it and how should we remember it? 
Well, I think um, like a lot of international interventions in Afghanistan, um, it will be remembered as a tragedy. And in the case of the American intervention, uh, of a tragic missed opportunity to build on the opportunity that the overthrow of the Taliban in late 2001 created to build a stable, um, you know, if poor and uh, fractured Afghan state and to um, uh, essentially create a path for Afghanistan to, um, you know, be at peace with itself and its neighbors. Uh, there was a great deal of optimism, not just in the United States, but in, in Europe and in the very large international coalition that came into Afghanistan after September 11th, uh, and, and a great deal of investment that was, that was made to try to stabilize Afghanistan. And, and of course, the, the continuing, the revival of the Taliban and the continuing civil conflicts in Afghanistan are not only the responsibility of the international community, but there was such blindness, such hubris, such overreach um, that followed this initial success that it's it's hard now to look at it as anything other than a than a tragic uh, failure um, of ambition. And unfortunately, Afghans um, in you know in the major cities and uh, in many other parts of the country that that uh, really tied their hopes to the international community now uh, justly fear that they will be uh, left in yet another phase of what has been a continuous civil war since the Soviet invasion in 1979, and that they'll be left in to fend for themselves uh, without uh, the, the reliable international um, support that, they, that they've enjoyed for the last 20 years. There are negotiations with the Taliban, as you know, underway in Qatar. Uh, they're, they're not off to a very promising start. Um, and while I don't expect the Biden administration to um, rapidly withdraw American forces from the country, the, the forces that are remaining are a small fraction of those that your, that your colleague, the author whose book you just showed, uh, you know, we're a part of. Remember, I mean, at the peak of international involvement in Afghanistan, there were 150,000 international troops trying to stabilize the country as the Taliban came back. Uh, now the U.S. presence is headed towards 2,500, and there's a NATO presence in addition to that. Um, you know, perhaps um, there can be some measure of stability and reduction of violence uh, over the next few years as these negotiations um, you know, proceed fitfully, but um, you know the history is written right now, and and there is and there is really no um, you know there's really no forecast for Afghanistan that's credible. I think that um, that is going to deliver the the visions of um, a modern, stable, and peaceful Afghanistan that that were so prominent uh, in people's hopes. You know, back in two thousand two, two thousand three. Uh, Steve, um, you're an observer broadly of the Middle East. Have, have Has the Trump regime uh, achieved anything? Rich Lowry, the relatively well-respected National Review editor, argues that Kushner has actually succeeded or had succeeded in some ways in the Middle East in breaking the Middle Eastern peace deadlock. It seems as if he's disgraced himself in terms of, of, of your 
friend, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, and the murder there. Will the will the, um, the 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 Kushner Middle Eastern strategy, if that's the right way of putting it, will that be one of the very few high uh, foreign policy spots of the Trump regime? Well, I think uh, the Trump administration's policies have clearly um, advanced Israel's interests in the Middle East uh, in significant ways by accelerating what was a quiet um, building rapprochement between Israel and the small um, but economically uh, significant um, monarchies in the Gulf. Um, you saw the normalization of relations between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain, uh, there was a report this morning that Netanyahu had met privately with the power in Saudi Arabia, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and um, you know this did bring into the open a tacit set of emerging bargains between Israel and these anti-democratic but significant um, states on the periphery of the Middle East that that are rich in oil and gas. Um, does that? Uh, you know, is that a prescription for stability in the Middle East? I don't think so. Those uh, monarchies, um, you know, are inherently unstable because of their very narrow political base. Uh, their dependence on oil is, um, you know, a 20th century um, kind of strategy that is now yielding to uh, a world that increasingly recognizes the danger of climate change and the need for a rapid transition away from fossil fuels. and uh, in the short term, I don't think the Biden administration is going to embrace this kind of rebalancing that the Trump administration has left behind. And they're not going to uh, try to break relations between Israel and, and these new states that have uh, provided diplomatic rec recognition, but they are going to be tougher on the monarchies that the Trump administration embraced so uncritically, and particularly Saudi Arabia, uh, and the and the power of uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, which has been exercised uh, so autocratically, and in the case of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, so shock with such shocking um, violence, uh, and you know that that doesn't mean that the Biden administration is going to um, you know go radically in in the other in another direction, but I think they're going to to uh, take a broader view of uh, Middle East. Uh, stability and not emphasize so much this this narrow set of new alliances that have come into the open. Uh, Steve, uh, shifting your hats, we can't blame everything, of course, on Trump, even if most of us would like to. <laughs> it seems to be a a general crisis. You're you're also the the dean of the graduate journalism school at Columbia University, and one of the themes throughout my show, I have a daily show is on the crisis of, of, of local journalism. Yesterday, I interviewed Tom Zollner, wonderful book, The National Road, in which he talks about this kind of amnesia now creeping over America uh, because of the collapse of local journalism, local newspapers. It, he's, a, he's on the left. Uh, PJ O'Rourke, who I also interviewed last week, would say the same thing from the right. Carl Hoffman, another wonderful writer, book called The Liar's Circus Observed essentially the death of local life in America as the Steve as the uh, as the dean of the, the the Columbia University Journalism School um, how worried are you by the crisis of local journalism in America by the death yeah. of, of local newspapers deeply deeply uh, worried about it it's not only a, a crisis in 
in journalism, um, it's also a crisis of democracy because uh, we have seen um, the collapse of uh, local, uh, locally owned, uh, robust newsrooms carrying out um, reporting about the transparency and accountability of local and state governments coincide with the rise of social media platforms and uh, the distribution of disinformation and misinformation uh, that has just exacerbated this sense that our public square is broken uh, and it's broken at the local level uh, above all uh, where you where you see um, you know disinformation misinformation campaigns circulating virally in local communities and um, basically undermining um, uh, trust in institutions, exacerbating what was already, uh, you know, a loss of trust in, in institutions. And now with the president uh, declaring this election to be essentially illegitimate, um, a, a crisis of trust in, in the mechanisms of voting and democracy. I, I, you know, just am finishing a book about Facebook that came out um, uh, maybe a year or so ago and and the it's, kind of, uh, it's 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 called um, Facebook the Inside Story I think um, oh okay Stephen yeah Stephen has been on the show too Stephen. yeah and you know it's a it's a it's a it's a access uh, driven but but um, important book of reporting with with independent critical intelligence about the the Facebook. Um, uh, Facebook's rise, but also uh, its succession of, uh, of contributions to um, uh, misinformation and manipulation in our public square. We all know it's, it's, a, it's a very odd um, uh, place we have come to in the United States, and we're not the only country where this is true, where um, our information public square is controlled by a a series of uh, monopoly private corporations that don't regard themselves as interlock as um, as gatekeepers of facts or the truth. They see themselves as neutral platforms that are trying to connect people together, and and are driven by um, what in some cases is a kind of radical free speech ethos. It is of course con consonant with the American First Amendment tradition, but uh, in in this case um, has rapidly marginalized fact-based professional reporting, which was um, certainly in the last 60, 80 years, such a bedrock of how Americans uh, were able to hold their politicians accountable, uh, self-correct, and inform themselves about what needed to change at election time. Uh, and this, this disruption, uh, which is structural, uh, is, is something that I don't think is going to go away. If anything, I fear that it's going to intensify and it's going to play out, um, uh, first of all, in local communities that don't have alternatives to the to the kind of sharing economy of, of news with quotation marks around it that has become so influential uh, over the last you know four to eight years and which Trump, of course, has exploited and his allies. Uh, Steve, you wrote a wonderful piece in the New Yorker earlier this year about the the way in which pandemics change history. We don't have much time left, so I don't really want to get into that. But perhaps the most abiding legacy of, of COVID-19 will be the destruction of local news. Uh, I wonder whether uh, 
that's uh, that that could be the most destructive thing that the that the pandemic has actually achieved. Finally, Steve, uh, I usually at the end of this show, I always ask my um, guests for a book to recommend in these strange times, and I always say privately to them, the one book you're not allowed to cite is Camus' The Plague, because everyone wants to do that. But I'm actually going to reverse this with you. I'm going to insist that you talk about uh, Camus' Plague, uh, because you wrote, again, you are, you're prolific in the, in the New Yorker as well as many other things. You, you wrote a wonderful piece earlier this year about Camus. We, all, we already had uh, Liesl Schillinger on the show talking about the role of the plague. But uh, to end, Steve, why should people reread the, the La Peste, the plague in, uh, in November 2020? Well, it's a marvelous piece of literature, but what I found really helpful about it, uh, I read it uh, early in the pandemic, um, was the way it um, made clear that a pandemic uh, is intrinsically um, uh, likely to, to, to expose the failures of states and the, and the, the kind of hubris of governance. And the, the, the sense that in such an imagined um, environment of, of North Africa and a very different time and place, that all of the, the denial, the, the, the role of business interests, the sense of um, opportunism that governments display in a crisis of this character uh, is repetitious and 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 tells us something about uh, that we should absorb as individuals um, about the limits of our uh, faith in the state appar apparatus that we all um, take take so much for granted in normal times. And you know, I I don't know what that implies other than that um, we have to recognize that these kinds of crises, um, pandemics, climate change. Uh, that are that are very difficult for states to manage are going to be a feature of our life in the 21st century. And as citizens, we need to understand that they are not the same as war or politics, that they are something that require um, a different kind of collective response. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.